The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. Well, this summer we have been spending a summer in the Psalms. And we have been looking at and seeing God speak to us through His Word, through the songbook, if you would, through the hymnal uh, of the Scriptures that has been used From the very beginning of the church, and when I say that, I speak even into the Old Testament of God's people using these songs, and looking at Psalm 1, how blessed is the man, how blessed is the person, how happy is the person, that happiness, that blessedness is an attainable quality, is it something that God offers to us that we can gain it, and when we come and we find and recognize who Christ is, that we become like a tree that is firmly planted by streams of living water. And we bear our fruit in season and our leaves never wither. This says the wicked are not so. They are like chaff that's blown away. And we live within a society filled with chaff of things that have no root, things that have no meaning. And through the gospel and through the scriptures and through Christ, it gives us meaning and root that's all the way into eternity. And then we saw in Psalm 8, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. When I consider the the heavens, your handiwork, and the Son of Man, what is man that thou art mindful of him, or the Son of Man that thou dost consider him? But you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and with honor. And seeing in that the dignity that God gives to humanity, that when you go out and you stand on the beach in the evening, and you see the myriad of stars that are there, you wonder and consider your smallness. When you look out over the ocean and, and, and consider how far it is and how large it is and how wide and deep it is, that if you were in it and lost at sea, how almost impossible it would be to find you, for we are so small in the grand scheme of things, yet God has crowned us with glory and with honor and dignity because we're made in His image. And Psalm 99, the Lord reigns, the Lord reigns, that he is a God of righteousness and of justice, that he is a God whom we worship and we serve, that we come in and we recognize that these profound attributes of who our God is are given to us and the task given to us to bring those realities to bear within our world That when we recognize that God is a God of justice, it challenges us to look around within our culture today and see where there is no justice. To see the places within our culture where there is injustice and the burden upon the Christian and the burden upon the church is to be God's voice of justice where there is no justice. To be the voice for those who have no voice. To go out into the margins to the marginalized and care for them when a culture and a society doesn't. That's what God's called us to do. Because he's the king who reigns in righteousness and justice. And as I returned this week from a very restful vacation away in the mountains, and I didn't miss you guys a ton. Um, I'm glad to be back, but it was great to be away. I came home to some confusion and some concerns uh, about the sermon last week. 
and received a number of correspondents, many of them, most of them, very well written and carefully articulated, others a little more impassioned in their writing. And what it was really centered around and was simply the use in Andrew Shank's sermon last week of highlighting within the desire to show that there's a need for justice within our country, the Black Lives Matter movement. And that organization is so polarizing and such a lightning rod that what was lost within the midst of the sermon for some was the simple reality that we do have injustice in our country and that we as a church are called to deal with it. And so if we could set aside at some level the Black Lives Movement, uh, Black Lives Matter movement for a moment, because at its heart there is a desire for good uh, of saying not that only Black Lives Matter, but Black Lives Matter too, and to say, though, sadly, that within any movement and within any organization, there are those who can hijack and on the fringes become radicalized within that. It puts us in a sad state of affairs. I find myself all the time almost never being able to give uh, my support fully to anything carte blanche because there's always edges and pieces that I won't agree with. And so I would say with us... Here's the challenge. The challenge is to set aside maybe your particular uh, emotive response to that statement of Black Lives Matter and consider this. It's very easy for the church, the American church most especially, that we've staked our moral high ground on abortion and homosexuality as the social issues that we care most about. And we have turned a blind eye to the racial inequities within our country. That's just the truth. The gospel, based on Psalm 99, compels us to go out and to see, what is that like? Folks, I don't know what it's like. I don't know what it's like. I have a son who, uh, he's my son, so he's South Carolinian. He's a young South Carolinian conservative Republican, worked for a Republican PAC uh, last fall, bringing all the Republican candidates into uh, the state of South Carolina to discuss matters of importance. But he's serving last summer and this summer out in Northern California with the Salvation Army, caring for at-risk and underprivileged teenagers and young adults, most of them undocumented, most of them young Hispanics who are just trying their best to figure out how to make it through day to day and living in constant and regular fear for choices that their parents made living and doing things that our culture and society needs. And it was fascinating to talk to my son when he came home. And he said, Dad, there's faces now with my policy. There's faces now. There's stories interconnected with public policy that I thought that I stood for. And it's challenged him. That's the hope of Psalm 99, is to challenge us to look around and as believers to say, there is a God who is a God of justice. And in this world, the reality is there is injustice. What do we and what can we and what should we do about it? The one thing we cannot do and the one thing we should not do is remain silent and immovable. I don't know what exactly we should do. We'll get there. But the one thing we can't do is just sit still and say nothing or infight about things, uh, about organizations and groups. So I hope that makes sense to you. 
that the purpose of Psalm 99 was not to be political in nature at all. And the purpose of the sermon, and I know the very heart of Andrew Shank well, was to highlight and challenge us uh, in these areas of race and an injustice. And now this week we come to Psalm number two. The first Psalm, how blessed is the one who walks with the Lord. And Psalm two says there's a king. And this king reigns, and we need to deal with him. It's a really simple psalm to break out, uh, to break into uh, form, into outline form. Some psalms and some passages of scripture are very difficult, uh, but this one's not. This one's really easy. If you're an outline person, here's your outline. There's a problem, there's a solution, and there's a response. There's a problem, there's a solution, and there's a response. And so let's come to the word of the Lord together this morning, and let's ask God to challenge us, to comfort us, to teach us, and to lead us to a deeper understanding and love for him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we ask now that you would speak to us through your word. Through the power of your spirit, we invite the Holy Spirit here now uh, to minister to us, to convict us, to challenge us, to humble us, to lift us up, to do your work in us. Father, we thank you for your word that you've preserved for all of these years and for these songs that we still sing. We give you praise in Christ's name. Amen. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us he who sits in the heavens laughs the Lord holds them in derision then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury Saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. This is the word of the Lord. May He add His blessing to the reading and to the hearing of it. A coronation psalm. A psalm speaking of the ascension of a king to a throne, for the ruler to be seated upon the throne. A psalm that has two intentions or two understandings. There is the original context understanding, which would have been for David or for one of his sons who came and ascended the throne. That it would have been read of them and spoken of them as a challenge to all the other nations around them. Be careful of the king of Israel who is seated on the throne of the lineage of David. For he's a strong king. And you can feel and hear the metal in the voice. That there's power in the language. 
But this psalm promises too much for it to be of only an earthly king. It is a psalm which points beyond the form or the shadow of the true king. That it is a psalm that speaks of the true coming king. When it says in verse 2, against the Lord and against his Messiah, his Mushiach, his anointed one. It says that we rage against the true king. And so it's pointing to something beyond itself. And so it's important to be able to understand and to read scripture that way. And the first thing that it teaches us is that there is a problem. That there is a problem. And the problem, excuse me, is this. We don't like to be ruled. We don't like to be ruled. Plain and simple. And I think if we were in another denomination, there may be an amen or two with that. We just don't like to be ruled. Because parents, how often have you found your children just thank you and just express their deep gratitude when you tell them the rules of the house and how it's supposed to go? Oh, mother and father, thank you for the rules of of order in our home. The dishes go here and they actually go in the dishwasher this way, not near the dishwasher, but in the dishwasher. And dirty, nasty, sweaty clothes aren't piled in a corner to fester for weeks and months. Oh, that the bed sheets are pulled up. Thank you so much for the opportunity to come home early when all my friends stay out late. I appreciate so much the fact that if I'm late by a minute, I'm on restriction. I really do. Thank you for ruling over me. I've been a parent a long time and hadn't gotten that one. Ever. You see, the funny thing about saying that is all of us were children at one point, And we've all had those exact same feelings. And we don't like to be ruled. We don't like teachers telling us what to do. We don't like bosses telling us what to do. We don't like governments telling us what to do. We don't like to be ruled. And if you're in your place of business and you're not the top box on the org chart, then somebody's going to tell you what to do. And it may sound something like this one day. I don't need your opinion. I need you to say, yes, sir, tip your hat and move on. Thank you for that opportunity. I appreciate that my opinion isn't valued right now, but I'm going to go do my job. That's awesome. This is great, fulfilling job. We hate it. It's so restrictive. The problem that we have, the nation's rage and the people's plot against authority, against the true king. It says that the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers of the earth take counsel together against the Lord. Because ultimately, when we rebel against any authority, and I'm not talking about civil disobedience, I'm not talking about, don't, don't go too far with that, but when we rebel against the proper authority structures given within our lives, it is at the heart of it a rebellion against the Lord. It's showing uh, our desire for independence and autonomy. We love self-rule. It's been the story of all of humanity for all of history, working out these six things that are listed, rage, plotting, setting ourselves against, taking counsel against, bursting bonds and casting away cords. Look at the whole course of human history. And we rage against the authority, especially the authority of the true king. So why do the nations, we can say, okay, that's true. But why do the nations do that? Why is this such a problem for us 
I believe it goes back to the original lie and the original temptation in the garden. That the original lie and the original temptation was to believe that God wasn't good. That he couldn't be trusted. That if he ruled you, he'd be ruling you in injustice, not injustice. That you'd be missing out on something. That that tree in the garden, that one tree which he said, don't eat of it. That that tree somehow was his way of saying and sticking it to us. Of saying, I'm God, you're not, just get used to it. When in all honesty, it was his way of saying, I am God and I've given you everything else, just not that tree. But we didn't trust him in Adam and Eve, and we still continue not to trust him now. That's the problem of human history. That is what's behind the raging, what's behind the plotting. And that within that original lie and temptation was another lie that was very subtle and oh so profound. It was this, not only can God not be trusted as a ruler, that he's not good essentially at his heart, but that we can rule ourselves better. That I've got it. Thank you very much. And we see that all the time. That we don't need the advice and consent of a creator. That we're going to do what we want to do, when we want to do it, how we want to do it. Thank you very much. We don't like to be told anything. Men are picked on all the time uh, about not reading instruction manuals. And that's probably a, a right thing. We don't like to be told what to do. We just want to figure it out. I want to open up a car engine and understand what happens. But if your car is broken down on the side of the road and I come over, all I'm going to do is stare at it with you. I don't know what to do. I've never read the instruction manual. I don't like rules and instructions. I want to figure it out. And there's a few screws and bolts left over at the end. They were probably just extras. They weren't needed. They were little appendix. And we don't need them. We don't know what they're for. So much so that when I had knee surgery a number of years ago, uh, that the doctor said, you need these things called crutches, and you should stay off of your knee. And so as I got rid of the crutches almost instantaneously, and walked around on that surgically repaired knee, and within a week's time was back in having another procedure to take care of the damage that I had done, I don't like being ruled. I don't like being told what to say. None of us do. We see it in our children. Children, you see it in your parents. We see it in organizations. We see it in marriages. We see it all around us. Because at the end of the day, there's a lie that says we think we know how to do it and we can do a better job. Now, we're not willing to discard God altogether. We're not that bold and daring. But we just want to marginalize him enough to turn him into a consultant It's a very 20th and 21st century thing to be a consultant. And so God becomes our consultant. God, we don't need you to run our lives, but every now and then I'd like to be able to call you on the phone uh, to ring my bell and have you come fix the mess that I've created. Not that it's really my mess. It was probably somebody else's mess, but now I'm having to deal with it. So I need you to come in and fix the mess. So we've created a God who is one who follows us versus us following him. We rule in the middle of it. At the end of the day, we want God to serve our needs, plain and simple. And when he doesn't serve our needs, we become embittered and angry and revolt or turn away altogether. It's been the story of humanity, and it's the story of Scripture. The story of Scripture is really quite simple. It's man in relation to God and God in relation to man. And if you read the Old Testament and the New, but especially in the Old, and you read Judges, you see this first point 
the problem that we don't like to be ruled played out with the theme of judges being this. There was no king in Israel and the people did what was right in their own eyes. And folks, it ended poorly every single time. And the people then found themselves in a mess and they turned within the context of their mess back to God. The problem is that we don't like to be ruled. We think that we can rule ourselves. You've been fed that your whole life. It's not saying you shouldn't have confidence and self-confidence, but it should be mitigated a bit in the middle of it. So what's the solution? God didn't just see the problem and say, oh, well. But God came up with a solution. And the solution was that he seated Christ on the true throne. The true king ascended onto the true throne. That their throne has somebody on it. That Christ is there and he's ruling. Because what God understood about that verse uh, in Judges, that the people uh, didn't believe that they needed a king, there was no rule, and they did what was right in their own eyes. He said this, he said, if you want that, if you want to exist without me involved, I will allow that to happen and I will even create a place where that happens and I will call it hell. For hell is the greatest monument to man's independence that God ever created. And it is a place where God turns and says, you got it. You're in charge. And it's called a place of deep suffering and of, of disintegration. Versus a place of integrating and of life. So God didn't leave us in that. It's still available for anybody who wants to go there. But he said this, I'm going to give you a solution and the solution is this, it's my son Christ. And I'm going to seat him upon a throne. And he is going to be the Messiah. And he who sits in heaven laughs and holds them in derision. And he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. It's this picture, if you would, of God and man going, we're going to rule, you can't rule us. It's the two-year-old taking on dad. Dad, I can take you down. I'm so angry with you that I have to clean up my room. The five-year-old saying, I am not going to do this. And stomping your feet and wagging your finger and going, I'm not going to do that. And mom and dad look down and they giggle. They laugh. Why? Because they know, listen, I'm a whole lot larger than you are. And I can make you do what I need to do. You're not going to win this battle. And that's a sense of what the, the psalmist is writing He's saying, oh, the nation's rage. And they think they've got so much venom. Ah, And God goes, I laugh. You have no idea who you're dealing with. It's my favorite passage of Scripture when Job had challenged God. And God said to Job, Job, gird yourself up as a man and step outside. <laughs> I'd be like, I'm out. I'm out. I'd be looking around for somebody else. Uh, take Will, take Zach, take Lisa, take somebody else. I'm good. But it was God saying, Job, no. I want to show you who I am. Were you here when I said to the mountains to rise up and to the valleys to lay low and to the oceans to come thus far and no further? Where were you, Job? Where were you, Bill? Where were you? God laughs in his derision in some sense. He says, but I'm not going to leave you there because not only am I a mighty and a powerful God, but I'm an incredible, gracious and merciful God. And I'm going to make sure that that throne has someone seated on it who is just like me. And he is my son. 
who is going to rule with an iron rod, who is going to be so strong and immovable that all the forces of hell will come against him at the cross and he will not lose. That they will bruise him and they will attack him, but at the end of the day, he is walking out of that tomb and no one can say anything about it. And God says, I win. And my son is on the throne. And my son's not going anywhere until I tell him to. And where he's going to go then is back to earth to make all things right and new. To recreate all things and then to reign in the midst of his people forever. Oh, what a great day that's going to be. You see, God vindicates Jesus' authority when he raises him from the dead. Go and you can read Acts 13 and 32 to 34 when it speaks of that language. And God subdues the rebellion of the world and establishes the rule of the true king in Christ. At one level, the cross is God laughing at all of the powers and principalities of hell itself. And the other, it's him smiling at us and saying this, folks, I haven't left you alone. I haven't abdicated my role and my throne, even though the nations rage and even though they plot against me, I still rule. There is a solution to your problem. Now, what are you going to do about it? It's one to say the thing we are. We have advanced degrees in the diagnosis of problems. We can tell that there are problems going on. Most of you recognize there's a little problem maybe with the HVAC today. I recognize that's why I'm liking to stand right here a lot right now. But what are we going to do about the problem? I don't know. We know there's a problem. We know there's problems in our marriages. We know there's problems in our schools. We know there's problems within our society. We're good at diagnosing problems. We're not very good at coming up with solutions, but even when we identify a solution, we don't know what to do with the solution. Well, God says here today, there's a problem. Here's a solution. Now you have to respond. And here's the response. Now, therefore, what's the therefore, therefore? You've learned that, hopefully, over the course of our time together. When you see a therefore, what is the therefore, therefore? Well, the therefore says, therefore, because Christ is seated on the throne, because he's there, because he's ruling, now, O kings, be wise and be warned. He's saying this, folks, be wise and be warned. If you head back over and try to go over the bridge, uh, over to Bluffton, the bridge doesn't exist anymore. It looks like it does, but it has fallen in. It really hasn't, but, uh, but it has fallen in. And you're going to be heading across there at 55 miles an hour. And I am warning you and I am asking you to be wise that you are free to go that route if you want to go. But it will end in your destruction. Is that loving or hateful for me to tell you that? It's loving. It's loving for me to say to you, Folks, be wise and be warned. God is so loving that not only did he come up with a solution to the problem of rule, that he put his son on the throne to rule uh, in grace and mercy and strength and power. But he says to us, now I'm warning you. I'm warning you of this. This king is not to be trifled with. He isn't small and he isn't little. And he rules with an iron rod. And he will ultimately one day destroy all those who oppose him. But while you have breath today, bend the knee. 
Don't drive over the bridge. It's your destruction. But stop. That's how loving this God is. And we look at it as closed-minded and short-sighted. When he's saying, no, it would be the utmost of love, of the lack of love and of hatred if I told you, just go do whatever you want to do. Parents, if you're letting your kids do whatever they want to do, you're not extending to them love. And kids, when your parents are engaged in your life, actually, they are loving you whether you realize it or not. God, when he sets bounds within marriage and bounds within relationships, and he says this is how things should be, he's extending love to us, not hatred. And so he says here, you have a choice to make, folks. You have a choice. There's a king on the throne. How are you going to respond? And he gives us several ways. The one is this. Are you willing to serve him? Serve the Lord. Serve the Lord with fear. Interesting. And I'm going to take you into Hebrew a little bit and into the Old Testament, into, into Genesis. But stay with me. It's awesome. I promise. You're probably going, yeah, whatever. Uh, but it is. Because here this word that he uses is the same word that God used back in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, where it said, The Lord God took the man and put him into the garden to serve and to keep. For most of your translations, it says to labor and to toil and to cultivate and to keep and all of those. But the picture there that says that the Lord God took the man, that picture of took the man is the word nuach, Noah, that he causatively, in the Hebrew, causative, that God caused the man to rest. Noah's name means rest. That he caused the man to rest within the garden to Avad and Shamar. To serve, worship, and obey. Why was there any need to toil? The fall hadn't come yet. He placed man in a place of rest, of flourishing, of shalom, within the garden to serve him and to worship him and obey him. And now God is saying, I'm inviting you back to this same place as what you were designed for. Isn't that awesome? Yeah. <laughs> it's like when... One of my sons had an issue in his knee, and it's very unique. And the doctor came to us and said, this is so cool. It's not going to be cool to you, but it's really cool to me and my work. That's kind of how I feel right now. But it's really awesome that what God's saying is this. Here's how you should respond. Serve me. Go back to be who you were designed to be. Come alive in my presence and know who you are. Let me, let me love you in that way. So we serve him. We serve the king. And some of you are going, serve. Gosh, it's all duty, all duty, all duty, all obedience. The very next thing blows that one away. He says, and rejoice with trembling. But it says, rejoice that in the presence of this king, they're singing and flourishing and that we rejoice in his presence. Not because we have to obey him, but because he's the king who says, hey, in my presence, not only do you not die, but you flourish. That you come and we rejoice that this king Read in Isaiah, who should be angry with us, has now turned his anger away onto Christ, and he now loves us, and we flourish in his presence. We rejoice in him. Not everything is just duty and bending the knee, but out of incredible reverence and joy, we rejoice. And it says that we kiss the sun. It's lost in our culture of shaking hands, but there was an intimacy that when Christ would come or a king would come or there was a relationship, you would extend and kiss 
Greet one another with a holy kiss. Other cultures still keep that. Our culture has lost that. But there was a sense in which he's saying this, when you recognize the true king, don't just serve him, don't just rejoice in his presence, find intimacy with him. Be intimately involved with him because this king kisses you. The difference between the older son and the younger son in Luke 15, which we call the prodigal son story, the essential difference between the older son and the younger son was that the younger son was kissed by the father. He was loved intimately by God. Are you willing to allow God, this king, to come and to kiss you and for you to kiss him? He says, and then we take refuge in him. Blessed, happy are those who take refuge in him. That he says, respond to me by running to me, not away from me. Respond to me and respond to this king by running to him and finding safety. How many of you, this is not uh, rhetorical, how many of you have or are currently facing something in your life that is more difficult for you to handle than you thought? It's, it's just so difficult that you're not sure you can handle it. A few of you have experienced things in your life like that? Most of you have. Maybe I didn't frame the question right. But I know this. Life can get tough. Hard. And the things that you expected to happen aren't happening. That the baby you so desperately wanted, you don't have. That the marriage you so hoped for isn't there for you. That your loved one is gone after 54 years. That you've heard the word cancer in your life. That your child, who you desperately love, is rebelling against you. That your loved one, your spouse, walked out on you. That your parent walked out on you and gave you the platitude, well, it's not your fault. And you carry that around. And the friends in school just assault you online. And you feel that you're standing alone. And this king is saying to you, come to me and let me be your refuge. Let me spread my wings over you. Let me be your walls. Quit fighting on your own. I can do it better than you if you just let me. And so many of us still want to hold on to our fake lightsabers and go, I'm taking him on. And God goes, this is the devil. This is life. This is the fall. You need me with my flaming sword and with all of the myriads of heaven and all of all of the troops of heaven for I am the Lord of hosts. Come and take refuge in me. Some of you so desperately want to run to him and you're terrified to do so. He's inviting you to that today. Find him as your refuge. Ah, we've got a problem. We hate to be ruled. We wondered if there's a solution and we realize quickly it's not coming in November. No matter what the outcome, folks, the solution to the problem is not in November. And it's not in four more years or in eight more years or whoever seated on the justices' seats or whatever. But we know we have a problem. And the solution we've been given is that Christ is seated on his throne. And now you have to decide, what are you going to do about that? Are you willing to bend the knee today? Kiss the son? Flourish in his presence? Or are you going to, with adolescent fervor, 
stand cross-armed and take him on. You have that right to do that. I just want to lovingly warn you, it will end poorly for you. Come to the Son. Let him love you today and let him rule you well. Let's pray. Father, we do praise you. Not because there are no problems, but because within the midst of the problem of this world and of the fall, you've given us a hope and a solution that is available to us. It is not too far from us. It doesn't cost too much money. We don't have to perfect ourselves in order to get it. We simply believe by faith and accept by grace and mercy the good news of the gospel that Jesus Christ lived and he died and he raised was raised and is now seated on the throne on our behalf. And he fights for us. And he cares for us. And he embraces us. And he strengthens us. And he covers us. He loves us deeply. Oh, would we run to that king instead of standing our ground? Would we lay down our arms? And would we run to this promise? And would we, with longing eyes, look to a promised land? For at some level, we stand on Jordan's stormy banks and cast a wishful eye. For there is a happy land. Father, would you lead us to that happy land where my possessions lie? To Christ be the glory. Amen. Let's sing this great song on Jordan's stormy banks. <laughs>